You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, the Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Britt Condiff joins me today to talk about The Masters, films by some of cinema's greatest directors that are only available on the Criterion Channel. But first, I'll check in with Aaron West of the Criterion Now podcast to discuss entry points for 30s and 40s French cinema. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion Channel. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, check out Drinking While Talking, hosted by Jill Blake and Wade Sheeler. Classic film, classic music, classic culture, shaken and stewed. Every episode of Drinking While Talking, Jill Blake and Wade Sheeler discuss movies and music new and old with forays into pop culture from the past, as well as wherever the spirit takes them as they get progressively more spirited. Whether they're delving into classic film, desert island pics, quizzes, games, or misguided monologues, the question will always remain, how far can they get until everything falls apart? As the editors of theretroset.com, the premier clearinghouse for all things classic, you can catch their deep dives into movies, music, and lifestyle. Sober. Their hope on drinking while talking is to take the pretension out of discussing the classics as they make their way from the early 20th century through modern day by way of film, culture, politics, through the prism of their unique and personal lens. And booze. Find out more at theretroset.com. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. I'm here with Aaron West of the Criterion Now podcast. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really great to have you on. It's great to be back. Yet again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Aaron, before we dive into our conversation on French cinema, I just would love to hear a little bit about what's going on with the Criterion Now podcast, uh, what you've been up to, and what's going on for the future of the show. Sure. Yeah, we've been having a, having a good time. I uh, have not been recording as frequently as we, as we had been la- last year. Uh, I think under COVID, I'm sure you... Can I identify this? Uh, we've had a lot of other duties to uh, balance, uh, but lately we've been at, at least monthly. And uh, in fact, I just recorded one with uh, John Lobinger mm-hmm. that I really enjoyed. Uh, John's an old friend, and we had a great conversation. And so, um, looking forward to, to that going up. And then uh, next year, we have some some interesting guests that we'd like to add. Uh, I'd like to have the show back a little more frequent. I think really COVID is going to determine that, uh, you know, for mm-hmm. how long we're in this. But yeah, we enjoy it, including some big names. We have some directors and um, some other interesting figures that I would like to get on, but the, that you know, takes time to organize yeah. around my schedule and their schedule. So, uh, so yeah, fun stuff. Yeah. Still enjoy doing the show. Yeah, that's great. One of the things that I love about Criterion now is that I think it it fits this really important place in the Criterion community. You know, many Criterion fans and aficionados were spread out across the country, and most of us don't live in close proximity to one another. And 
most of us connect online. Most of us connect in Facebook groups or via Twitter. And it's really a great, uh, a great show to, to, to bring those, those conversations that we have online into a space where it feels like uh, the, the conversations that we would have in person with one another. And so uh, I think it's a, it's a wonderful show for that. So uh, thanks for, you know, you're doing the Lord's work, Aaron. Thank you. Yeah, and we're on opposite ends of the country, and uh, yeah. so it's, and we, but we have uh, you know overlapping interests. So it's uh, it's 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 an enjoyable show, and it's uh, you know I, I think it's pretty light, and um, we we don't try to get too deep. So uh, so it's everybody enjoys doing it. So yeah, more to That's come. Great. Well, uh, on this episode, we are revisiting a theme that you actually joined joined the episode for back in, I believe, November of 2019. So uh, a while ago, we uh, we talked about the Masters when you were on for the full episode. Some of the greatest directors of cinema history. So we're going to be revisiting that theme throughout this episode. And you know, I thought it would be great to talk about one of cinema's you know really great periods of history, which is, you know, French cinema from the thirties and forties. And I know that this is a, a time period that you have a really particular interest in. So I thought it would be great to bring you on to maybe help listeners find a few entry points into that period if they haven't started exploring that yet. So before we start to dive in and maybe give some recommendations, I'm just curious to know, Aaron, what are some of the the ways what what got you interested in this period of cinema history well it, it actually goes back a ways probably wow maybe 20 25 years ago now mm. but when i saw this obscure little movie called grand illusion by this <laughs> little known filmmaker named uh, jean renoir mm-hmm. and i just saw it on some list somewhere and thought i'd check it out and uh and my mind was pretty pretty blown by it i'd seen other war movies like uh well not like that but i'd seen plenty of war movies foreign, American um, art films and, and otherwise, but I'd never seen one that kind of approached that sort of humanity. And I guess just like the uh, the inspiration, the, the, the camaraderie, and that isn't always strictly adhered to across, you know, even enemy lines and across class mm-hmm. and rank. And uh, and there's a certain bit of realism and humanity in that film. And of, of course, a lot of us have seen Grand Illusion. It's a masterpiece. But I, you know, that found me made me want to search out more. Uh, so first I searched and found as many genre noirs as possible. And then as I as I grew, I learned that there was this period from uh, the 30s really up to the, the end of the war because it continued during the war, even during the occupation. And it, and it kind of mixed with my, my love of history as well because mm-hmm. there were a lot of, uh, you know, the rise of Nazism and how that impacted France. That was, um, and also socialism during that period. See, I just find it fascinating, and uh, and that movement, which a lot of people call poetic realism, just seemed to to land with me almost universally. I, I love these films. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I think Grand Illusion was probably my first film in that as well, and falling in love with Renoir, and then diving into films like Rules of the Game. Those were were pretty monumental for me in kind of discovering discovering this period of cinema what are some of the filmmakers that you find that are some of your favorite filmmakers from this period who were the the filmmakers that you just really connect with so there are a few and uh and and one thing i should mention is back when we had criterion close-up 
technically, I guess we still do, but uh, we, we don't <laughs> record those as often. Mm-hmm. We, we were doing a, a series uh, as we dove into some of these filmmakers, and uh, we, we didn't finish. We were, we were going to get to the later Renoir, but mm-hmm. so we, we did talk about a lot of them in, on that series. And some of the some of the names I'll mention, we, we kind of dived into. So Renoir is, I think, basically like the, the patron of uh, poetic realism. But there's also uh, there's John Vigo is a big one. You know, he didn't didn't make a lot of films in his career, and his, his unfortunately his life was very short. But um, there were a lot of impact within those films. Although those impacted more the French New Wave. Uh, I think he was rediscovered later. Marcel Pagnol who for a while we didn't have a lot of his films here in the States, but uh, mm-hmm. recently Criterion's acquired a few. And he was a, a playwright that transitioned to films. They're all they're not all the same. You know, some some are more art, artistic than others. Others have more edge. I'd say Patnell is probably the closest to the mainstream, mm-hmm. but they're very, very enjoyable. I also really like uh, Julien de Vivier. He's a little little more under the radar, although there, he has a number of films on the Criterion Channel, has an Eclipse series, um, and has some some big monumental works uh, like Pepe Lamoco, which is a, really a pre, pre-noir. And then finally, I would say Marcel Carnet, who is also, actually, I would say he's more of a, a noir-like director, although he does have some more of the, the humanist poetic realism that aspects and he actually continued to make films during the war and i would say actually a couple of those are some of the the most tender films that i appreciate uh, the most mm-hmm. culminating with uh, children of paradise yeah so yeah children of paradise was one of those other ones that i think i saw that because it was on roger ebert's great films list again as i was just dipping my toes into art house cinema that was one of those monumental films for me that just captivated me and blew me away you know a lot of those early forays into art house cinema i felt like it was homework and mm-hmm. both grand illusion and children of paradise were ones that transported me and that i found so captivating they weren't work at all but they right. were they were just rapturous films that were extremely moving and extremely beautiful so yeah as we're going over these like I suddenly am reminded of why I love films from this time period as well. And, you know, I think about going to see the Marseille trilogy. Our local film festival showed it over the course of three days, one weekend, and seeing it on the big screen. You know, there are just these these really incredible works of art that uh, we get from this time period that it is a, a really stellar time in film. Yeah, I really like how you said they're not work. And, and I think for the most part, that's true. They're just really enjoyable. And, yeah. and they're they're not always, some are different. So I didn't mention Rene Claire. He's a huge filmmaker as well. Mm. His are more common, uh, comic. And then there's mm-hmm. also Sasha, Sasha Guitry, who is you know, very, very much comedies. And he, yeah. even I think the best of Renoirs are pretty easy to watch. Uh, though I would exclude maybe, say, Abed Humane is maybe a little mm-hmm. more challenging, although it's still kind of a blue-collar story. And then uh, yeah. Rules of the Game, I think, is probably the most impenetrable and um, sometimes needs a couple watches to, to really get on its wavelength. Although I, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's Renoir's best work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, for people that are maybe just dipping their toes into this time period, what are a couple of landmark films that you think people should check out if they haven't really started watching films from this time period? 
Well, I, I, I think we've already covered Grand Illusion. I, I think mm-hmm. Grand Illusion is a great entry point. If you want something lighter, maybe more comedic, maybe Bodu's Safe from Drowning. I think the Renoir is probably the, the best mm. entry point, just period. Bodu's Safe from Drowning, it's not his best film, but it's an early film. You can kind of see see how he was finding his voice. And it's also a little bit funny, and you get to see the, the wonderful Michelle Simone. Mm. Also, around the same time, also with Michelle Simone, there's uh, La Chienne, which is mm-hmm. uh, more accessible, and it's a little more of a... Wouldn't say a thriller, but you know, more of a crime drama. Mm-hmm. And then I think uh, from the other film, well, I think you know, I mentioned Migo. Frankly, because he only made five films, you can just watch them in succession over a weekend. But Latalant is, uh, is is truly special, and, and even though, as I mentioned, it wasn't very influential on at the time, and more influential on uh, new wave directors, it's very much in in the spirit of the poetic realism. And for Dubivier, I, w- I would say Pepe Lamoco for sure. And then there's Raymond Bernard, uh, Lemus Rob, I think is mm. is a big one. And then Carnet, I would say, in, in addition to Children of Paradise, I would say um, Hotel du Nord. And then I don't I don't have a lot of names in front of me, so they're they're <laughs> they're hard to uh, remember. Le jour, uh, Le jour c'est levé. C'est levé, yeah. Oh. Yeah. And then uh, I would say some of the early players, uh, Nuzel Liberté, it's good. Le Million. Uh, there, yeah. There's a lot of really wonderful films out there. Mm. Are there some kind of more obscure or some some more overlooked gems that that you feel like films that maybe don't get talked about as much from this time period that you feel like people should look into more from from some of these directors? Yeah, I would say that there are quite a few, and there's probably more that we don't even know about because yeah, it's really just about a dozen or so that we have just looking at the channel itself. That we have access to, so I would say uh, some of Duvivier's work is mm. so, sort of obscure. You know, he was not the the most famous. Of, they called him the Big Five filmmakers. There's also um, uh, Jacques Fader is more obscure, mm. and but he had some some really strong works. I would say even some of uh, Carnet's works are are not uh, as well known. And then even you know Renoir is the master, but um, some of the the between works, so the crime of Monsieur Lang is harder to find. I don't believe that's mm-hmm. on the channel, but I, I feel that yeah. that could possibly come to Criterion someday. Uh, Le Marzelet, which is also not on the channel, but even uh, you know, on Purge BB, uh, which is kind of a silly uh, comedy, it is on the channel and it's very obscure, but it's uh, it's worth watching. Yeah, you know, and just as I'm scrolling through the list of French films from the 30s and 40s that are there, I mean, you have some really odd oddities here i mean you have right next to you know some big big heavy hitters you also have la man uh, du diable by maurice tournier you know the the very kind of poetic horror film you know you have some really just delightful little little gems just throughout when you use the all films filter and start to do that. You also have the, some of the early works when you're getting past the war, we, we said we'd stop it at the war, but you, you also do start to have Jean-Pierre Melville starting to make some films. I mean, this is just this incredibly rich, rich history here of, mm-hmm. uh, of cinema. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately not all of them are on the channel, Mm-hmm. I, I would actually prob- probably if I were to choose one obscure film that is worth seeking out, even if it's not on the channel, it's uh, Grimillion's Lady Killer. 
Mm. It's from 1937. That's the one I'd say. But yeah, all those. Yeah, again, there's there's the tonal shift after after the war when yeah. uh, when the French got when, when they were able to see all these American movies, and I would say that's a, a good dividing line from you know Melville's a perfect example because he was yeah. influenced by Hollywood. So the films did change after after the war. I think poetic realism essentially ended. Uh, even John Renoir's uh, the tones of his later films. Yeah. You know, the River is very much unlike anything he's ever done anything any of these French filmmakers <laughs> have ever done but uh, but yeah through the war and especially in the in the 30s uh, yeah. and there was a, it was a very vibrant time for film yeah you've talked a little bit about some of your personal favorites but are there other things that you just adore that you haven't talked much about yeah I, I think Renoir Vigo notwithstanding uh, I think and we've already talked about the Marseille trilogy which is mm-hmm. is beautiful the early um, uh, Rene Claire films, I think he kind of he kind of stumbled uh, after his first couple, and he, he went to Hollywood too. Yeah, I'd say again, say uh, Julien de Vivier. Um, so I, uh, I think I already mentioned it, but Pepe Lamoco is a special one. Dance program, I forget the French term. That one's on the channel yeah. as well. Is on the Eclipse. Uh, Incarnate de Ball is, is the yeah. uh, that film. That that's actually I would say that's kind of an obscure gem as well uh and has a really a who's who of uh, french actors in yeah. the cast um and then uh, i'd say for carnet i i didn't mention port of shadows that that's a, a big one for me because I, just because of the noir element and then there's there some more carnets after after the war or sorry during the war that were kind of special you know he kind of kept that almost pre-noir the chiaroscuro template yeah. uh, a lot of that originated in these films and also um, german expressionism yeah there's just just so much yeah. So much great stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I will put links to your French cinema series for Criterion close up and also the episodes of the Eclipse Viewer that you did with uh, David Blakesley and Trevor Barrett on Duvivier. Because, again, I think that those those episodes shone a light on some really incredible films that were pretty magnificent there. Thanks. Yeah. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. This was a real delight. Yeah, likewise. Anytime. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I shot off a, a message to you and said, hey, I, I think I want to talk French cinema from the 30s and 40s. You said, count me in. <laughs> I, I said, count me in, but I said, that that's not the only thing I know. <laughs> I know. That is true. That is true. <laughs> I don't well, we'll have the, you on for more things, too. But I don't yes. want to be typecast as the, <laughs> the, 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 the 30s, 30s French guy. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they, they are beautiful films, so I yeah. appreciate the opportunity to talk about them. Yeah. Where can people find you online? So I guess Twitter uh, sometimes, um, AWES505, but I would uh, recommend go to the, the Criterion Now group. I think a lot of us... A lot of the people on the show hang out there, and uh, and we talk about stuff that's in the Criterion world. And the same thing with uh, the Criterion Channel Club too, is um, which is more specific to this show. But um, but I, I can be found there as well. Awesome. Well, we'll be right back with more Criterion Channel surfing as Brett Condiff and I discuss the Masters, films from some of cinema's greatest filmmakers that are only available on the Criterion Collection's permanent digital library. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, check out Just the Discs, hosted by Brian Sauer. Just the Discs is a podcast about Blu-rays. In each episode, Brian Sauer will go through a stack of discs from various distributors and talk about them. Find Just the Discs wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. I'm here with Britt Condiff, and we're getting ready to dive into the back catalog of Criterion's streaming library. Because the channel releases so much incredible content each month, it's really easy to overlook some of the corners of their library. So here on the podcast, we try to pay special attention to these titles and give you a few films to check out that you may have missed. It's been a while since we looked at films by the masters, the some of the greatest filmmakers uh, making films yesterday and today. So we thought it was time to revisit the theme and highlight a few more films by some of cinema's greatest directors that are only available on the Criterion channel. If you'd like to follow along at home, Michael Hutchins has compiled a letterbox list of Criterion's streaming-only titles. You can find a link to that in our show notes. Britt, before we dive into the films, I'm just curious to know when you think about the masters, when you think about kind of greatest filmmakers, what are some of the things that kind of first come to mind for you? Oh, good question. So it's kind of a multi-layered answer for me. I initially think of what I was taught in film school, like the grand masters mm. of cinema that kind of paved the way to influence the the filmmakers that we know and love today. And then also kind of beating that idea out of my brain and kind <laughs> of forming my own response to that question. Because, I mean, we love the Scorseses, I love the Kurosawas, I mm -hmm. love the Bergmans, but most film education, depending on where you go and who you're teaching and who kind of signs up for your classes, it's been my experience that a lot of the quote-unquote masters have been cis white men. Yeah. So just kind of revamping that definition. My mission is to shine light on other filmmakers and I do say that with a grain of salt because I am going to be talking about Stanley Kubrick today, who was one of my favorites. So I am <laughs> a part of that system. However, but yeah, just kind of reminding myself that like, yes, these are great filmmakers and they did a lot to influence the, the directors that we know and love today. However, just kind of doing your more research on your own outside of like the university setting and yeah, just kind of discovering on your own, like, who do you think the masters of cinema are? Because there's a lot that aren't necessarily categorized in that, that I think deserve to be recognized and I think have influenced a lot of prominent filmmakers that we love today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that one of the things that is so often, my wife and I will talk about this a lot. There's this, this idea that the canon is fixed that there is one canon and uh, it is always the realm of the straight white man, right? And I always really appreciate when we can kind of break that canon open and begin to to look at who are the masters who are who are working at the top of the game, who are challenging the form, who are doing things. And so, yeah, I really appreciate the what you've said there because I think that it's all too easy to just focus on Bergman, Kurosawa, Fellini, and Godard and leave it at that and say that those are the masters, that's it, and everything else is lesser. And so, yeah, I really appreciate trying to to add other filmmakers into that conversation. So, yeah, no, I think this is great. I'm excited to to have this conversation with you. So, well, let's let's dive right in and uh, let's talk about the what is the first film that you want to talk about today? Awesome. The first film I want to talk about today is a short film, Illusions by Julie Dash. This is released in 1982. I first saw this film in film school in my women in film class years ago. My professor, I'm going to shout her out, Deborah White Stanley, if you're listening love you dearly. You've had a great influence of how I view cinema. 
And she was really adamant about when she taught that class that we were only going to watch films directed by women. That was it. Because it's such a hard, I can't imagine teaching, like that's such a hard thing to do. It's just like narrow down, like how many films can we watch in a semester? And she did such a fantastic job of exposing us to not only just like women directors, but black women, queer women, and just did a really awesome job of like really shaping my knowledge of film. And Julie Dash is one of the first black women filmmakers that I it's just so taken by. She's such a brilliant filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And I don't think enough people talk about her work. And I would consider her a master. I think yeah. she, especially if you've seen, I think Daughters of the Dust is probably her most famous film, her feature length film. It's a really beautiful piece for any Beyonce fans out there. If you've seen the Lemonade visual album, a lot of Beyonce's music videos were actually inspired by Julia Dash's film, Daughters of the Dust. So there's a sort of like pop culture element that's been incorporated into that as well these days. And I think it's really important for people to study cinema and study, you know, the films that were before these films came out. So I would say if you're a Beyonce fan and you really love that, definitely check out Daughters of the Dust. It's a stunning piece of cinema and anybody who likes Ava DuVernay which I'm a huge fan of I think she's got a lot of influence from Julie Dash and other black filmmakers I think if you wanted to see kind of where she got her inspiration from I would definitely check out Illusions Mm -hmm. yeah I am really really excited that the channel has so many of her short films on right now. I am really eager to to dive into some of those formative films from her because I think that, again, Daughters of the Dust is such a pivotal, such a seminal work. And to get these short films as well, I think short films are, are those... Short films are always so, so hard to find a lot of the time from great filmmakers and to be able to, to just capture how a filmmaker is growing and learning and developing their skills. I am really, really excited. So I'm glad you're highlighting this. And I think that short films are often not taken as seriously by film goers and by cinephiles. I think they often think of them as kind of minor works or lesser works. And I love that, that that you are highlighting this as worthy of just kind of deep consideration for people. So no, thank you for highlighting this. Yeah, definitely. It's a really interesting film. It's only 32 minutes long, so it's a really quick watch. Mm-hmm. But in that 32 minutes, it deals with so much commentary on racism and not just racism overall, but there's some commentary on, you know, like skin privileged in the black community mm-hmm. and Without giving too much away, the basis of the film is basically a woman who was white passing works at this film studio and she helps kind of get the ball rolling to help other Black singers incorporate themselves and kind of move into the film industry. And it's a commentary on, it takes place in the 40s. So this studio exec brings a woman in to do a voiceover soundtrack for a white actress. And so it's a big commentary on that. So if you've if anyone's ever seen singing in the rain and sort of the controversy behind that it's more of a it's sort of a commentary on like that sort of a thing where black women were heard but not seen and mm. i feel like that definitely still translates over to today's political climate and has a lot to say in that regard so even though it was takes place in the 40s filmed in the 80s it's still a very relevant film and i think it draws up so many interesting conversation pieces on race and politics and cinema and just the way we view black women in this country is just 
I can, can't say enough about this film. I'll stop there without giving too much away. But yeah, it's very striking. Oh, that's great. That sounds really, really good and really, really compelling. So yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for that recommendation. The first film that I am going to recommend is Claire Denis' Chocolat from 1988. And Claire Denis is a filmmaker that I am really still just beginning to dive into. The last time we did a master's episode, I, I referenced her in our follow-up episode. I referenced High Life. I had just started exploring her films with High Life and Let the Sunshine In. I'd seen White Material. So I had been watching some of her later work. And so I'm slowly starting to go through her earlier films. And Chocolat is Claire Denis' first film. It is an an absolutely stunning first feature. It is the story of a French family that lives in colonial Cameroon. It is about the the power dynamics between the white family and their servants. It is one of the most striking examples of I've seen a lot of films by white filmmakers that take place in colonial Africa. And so many of them are these kind of sweeping romances. They, they romanticize things. The black characters are often sidelined. They are often ignored. They are background players for the, the white characters, frankly, more boring (laughs) romantic issues and this film is really, really intriguing in the ways it plays with the, the subtle power differentials. It explores how complicated these things are. Claire Denis is, is so interested in just the embodiment of the, the physicality of what it means to be in a space there are just some incredibly striking scenes that are heartbreaking. She never hits you over the head with the political messages, but it is such a powerful and profound work that shows how colonialism dehumanizes and how it, how, how hard it is to retain your dignity in these situations and yet how you struggle to and how you try to. I mean, it is a a gorgeous film that is just full of so much thought and care and nuance. And it just, it, it's a really incredible first feature. It, it makes me very, very excited to continue exploring her early work. Now that I have, you know, kind of fallen in love with what she's doing in her later work. I'm, I'm just, I'm all in for continuing to uh, just explore her filmography. I think that she is a masterful filmmaker that is, is doing some incredible work and is really, really eager to deal with the complicated legacy of colonialism. I know that she's dealt with this in a number of her films. She grew up in colonial Africa and has been wrestling with a lot of these issues throughout a lot of her films and is trying to to explore these issues in some really complicated ways. She doesn't make the the white family either complete buffoons or complete monsters, but she really wrestles with the the complications of what it means to to live with that degree of privilege in a society. It's just it's it's a masterful work. To come right out of the gate with a film that strong is pretty remarkable. Wow, you just, I have to add that to my list now. I was going to anyway, but I was just like, <laughs> such a great overview of that. 
I haven't seen a lot of her early work and it's been on my ever growing to watch list. So yeah, now that I know that this is on the Criterion channel and she's got a pretty decent catalog, I'll definitely have to check it out. Yeah, and this is one that Janus Films and Criterion, it looks like they now have the the permanent rights to. So this is one that probably won't be going anywhere anytime soon, which is really good. I'm really excited for that. Hopefully they'll get a good restoration in and we may even get a disc release at some point. It's a remarkable film. So yeah, I I can't wait to continue, continue to dig in. So yeah. Britt, what is the second film that you are going to be talking about today? Second film, I chatted a little bit about this earlier, is Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Yeah, just to kind of recap, it's a really funny film. It's pretty timeless. And I think with, <laughs> without going too deep into <laughs> kind of like the political nonsense that's been happening in 2020 and now the beginning of 2021 (laughs) it's such a parody and but a parody that is so realistic that it's almost become realism at this point i think it does a really good job of it was very therapeutic for me to watch with uh, everything going on in the world with all the um unsettledness and just unease with covid and all that Mm -hmm. that we all have had to kind of readjust our lives and livelihood it's pretty scary times and to go back and watch this in 2021 was just yeah just a very very therapeutic process for me I tend to delve more into comedies and parodies when I'm feeling really anxious and Mm. kind of distraught so I think this was the perfect one for me to just kind of let go of and but also at the same time it was like man I would not be surprised if everything that happens in the war room in this movie is actually what happens in the Capitol <laughs> currently. I mean, my favorite quote of the entire film is, you're not allowed to fight in here, gentlemen, this is the war room. Like, I just <laughs> envision just insane quotations of that and just nervous generals in the corner. Just, if you haven't seen it, there's a really funny scene of this long take of them in the war room, just kind of plotting and planning with Russian allies and just all sorts of silly nonsense going on politically but there's a character that goes in the corner the entire time it's just his anxiety is becoming worse and worse and he deals with it not by talking over anybody or he slowly interjects but he'll mostly just sit in the corner and just keep adding new sticks of gum into his mouth and I envision that's all of us at home right now just continuing to just like chew more and more gum and just kind of just kind of deal with what's happening right now as best as we know how because I mean, this year threw us through so much of a loop that like I feel like that's a good <laughs> a good representation of like how we've had to adjust this year with everything going on it's just we're all just sitting in the corner nervously chewing gum hoping for the best outcome but yeah and it was really good it was really good really fun time Peter Sellers is always a treat to watch on screen even when he's not being funny he's funny he's got that very much uh that Buster Keaton sense of comedy where he could be very physical. He could be very, he could just show up on screen and not do anything. And he's just, he just has that charisma and that hilarious tone about him and the way he presents himself. And he's just comedy through inside and out. Like he just, yeah, kind of like the Chaplins and the Buster Keatons. I mean, he was born to be a comedic actor. Like he could just stand there and look at you and you just can't help but crack up and feel at ease. So it was really fun to watch this again through a different lens. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like what you're saying that 
all of those those cold war anxieties actually while we're not as worried about you know well not as worried about nuclear destruction you know they have though been displaced by you know covid anxieties by the anxieties of you know far right extremists by all of these other anxieties that have been ramping up you know especially over the last 4 years and they've just intensified over the last year and i think dr strangelove i think kubrick captured that anxiety so perfectly in this film in a way that that is pretty pretty powerful and even to the point of capturing all of the the conspiracy theories with the general trying to start the nuclear holocaust you know there's something so prescient about everything in this film that even though it's speaking to a very specific time and place it still feels so so relevant depressingly so Uh, absolutely. And you're right. Yeah, I think he does a fantastic job of capturing the the unease, for lack of a better word, that we're all feeling right now. There's just so much we don't know, but we also know too much. And I think he captures that sort of anxiety perfectly. Yeah, and obviously it, it addresses the atomic bomb culture because this was filmed in the 60s, but that could very easily translate to pandemic culture because we've mm-hmm. all never lived through one so this is all super new to us and just coping with mask culture and cdc regulations that we never even had to think about before you know with the gum chewing that he (laughs) focuses on on that scene i think is at least me now with you know hand sanitizer just like Mm -hmm. making sure i wash my hands and am not potentially infecting other people yeah it's a very interesting dynamic that he captured there yeah yeah, it is it is interesting how films like this that again are made by by really incredible filmmakers can even though they're not intended to can can still speak so powerfully to the anxieties of what 60 years later almost and <laughs> still have that same power and that same relevance. Well, my my final film that I'm going to talk about today is from Chantal Ackerman. It is Histoires du Mérique, Food, Family, and Philosophy from 1989. And Chantal Ackerman is a Belgian filmmaker who I first encountered through Jean Dielman and through a number of her more experimental early films that Criterion released in a, a small box set. And she's a filmmaker that I have been really riveted by. I think that her work is just extremely compelling. And I do think that she is an absolute masterful filmmaker. And so I've been slowly working my way through the films of hers that I haven't seen yet. She has a a really immense body of work that is pretty incredible. And this is one that I haven't had a chance to see yet. And I honestly didn't know much about it. I, I picked it at random from the the titles that Criterion has the streaming rights for. This is one that is part of the permanent library. And this is an absolutely 
just again one of those ones that I, I find really compelling ackerman is often a bit more of a formalist filmmaker i think about her early more experimental work or about john dealman there is a, a real disciplined restraint to so much of what she does and in, in camera placement in the uh, the use of time and duration uh, the use of static shots and in histoires du merique she is telling the stories of jewish immigrants to America, who fled the pogroms of Russia, who fled Nazi Germany, who fled persecution in Europe and made their way to America. There are these direct address monologues told directly to the camera in static shots that are then interrupted by almost vaudeville comic beats they're kind of yiddish jokes or stories and the film opens with another story of a man who would walk through the woods every day and pray at the same tree and god heard him and his son didn't know where the tree was but he walked through the woods every day and prayed at a different tree and god heard him and the the grandson didn't know where the woods were, but walked to town every day and prayed and God heard him. And so this idea of history and faith and humor and connection and this idea of trying to be tethered to a community is all just so beautifully packaged in this this combination of of the the darker narratives the darker stories the sadder stories of the jewish diaspora but also the the humor the the gallows humor that comes up when you have been persecuted and you have fled it's just this incredible mix and blend and it's all very presentational it's all very formalistic and it's this incredibly theatrical it feels like it could almost be a stage play and yet it's all done in this very visual presentation that i think ackerman is just doing amazing work with in her framing in her compositions taking these stories from the 1800s from the early 1900s from just after the war and yet setting them all in modern day uh, at that time new york city it's just it's this incredible beautiful beautiful film that uh, the more I think about it, the more I am just riveted by it. And I find it really moving. It's a fascinating film that, again, I just, I find the different types of films that Chantal Ackerman has done over the course of her career, completely riveting from these very severe dramas to musicals, to this kind of incredibly strange, but compelling bit of theatricality here. Yeah, the gosh, I'm a huge fan of Ackerman. I think she's such a fantastic filmmaker. And this is one of the films of hers I haven't seen. So I'm really excited to add it to my list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Especially with Jean Dealman, always strikes out in my mind whenever I think of Ackerman. I'm like, that's her. Yeah. She has a great catalog, but that's, I think that film is such a masterpiece and she does a really, which kind of bothers a lot of people, but I really enjoy it. And I think it's very, very similar can be said about Gus Van Sant's experimental films. She plays a lot with real time in her films. Mm-hmm. So you actually feel the extent of what the characters are feeling. It's not yeah. like this has happened and it's implied and we cut to a next scene and 
you know, the next scene takes place, you know, three hours later or what have you. She will, she will leave the camera there and you will see every single wrinkle of the eyebrow, every movement of this character, what they're feeling at that very moment in real time, which makes it feel very more realistic and, you know, more sorrowful for her sadder films and more joyful for her happier scenes. But yeah, I really, I definitely agree with you. Her use of camera and color and the way she frames her shots are very intentional, even though they might not seem to be at first glance. And yeah, she's a very striking filmmaker. I really enjoy her stuff. So I'm glad that you checked this out and recommend her also. Yeah. And the more I discover all of these different corners of her filmography, the more impressed I am that there are all of these varieties that she was exploring as well. It makes me really eager to just continue to explore what she's doing because there's just, it seems that there's so much that she's interested in. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm super excited for continuing to dive into her work. Well, those are four films to catch on the Criterion channel that you may have missed. Illusions by Julie Dash, Chocolat by Claire Denis, Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb by Stanley Kubrick, and Histoires du Marique, Food, Family, and Philosophy by Chantelle Ackerman. Britt, thank you again so much for joining me today. This has been such a great conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Where can people find you online? I'm on Facebook, Britt Condiff. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and also Taste is my film app of choice under the name emit underscore Brits. I'm not super active on Letterboxd anymore, but after this conversation, it's made me want to re-download that app and <laughs> give that another whirl. So maybe you'll catch me there in the next week or so. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been great. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, CinemaCocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group, or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at criterioncast.com and support the work of Criterion Cast at patreon.com/criterioncast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash joshhornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show. And for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. I'd like to thank this month's new Patreon supporter, Aaron West. Thank you so much for supporting the show, and I'd like to thank all of our current supporters. Your support really does mean so much. On the next episode of Criterion Channel Surfing, Britt and I will return for a follow-up to today's episode in which we'll discuss films by master filmmakers that are available on other streaming services. I hope you'll join us. 
Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.